If you're a person in those positions right there, and you and you know what's taking place, and you don't do a finger to lift, you know, to to stop the extortion racket, the uh, the narcotics flowing in and out of those places. If you don't do anything from that that position of power, you're as culpable as the people. Amen, who are doing brother. It, in my opinion, preach it. So preach it, Reverend Josh. Preach yeah. it. That's right. boys and girls welcome in another fine week of alabama politics uh, luckily we've named this show alabama politics this week so we, we are discussing the right <laughs> topics here uh josh moon and david person hey hey you know it's uh it still sucks man that we're not in the same room but at least yeah. uh we got the internet stable enough for the time being that we can right. at least see each other uh through yeah. the zoom yeah. uh so but uh it's uh been been a uh, interesting week uh since we last left you, I would say, I, and I, I think we have three topics that we could go to, to, to open. You know, if you're, if you're looking for your, your headliner, your top story, mm-hmm. uh, we could either have COVID, which I mean, we have essentially a nine 11 occurring every day now at this point with deaths. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. yeah, I, I saw a, a chart the other day that, that tracked the deadliest days in American history. Uh, you know, had uh, Galveston hurricane, with eight thousand people who died. Uh, had uh, you know, so a couple of civil war battles in there, and then it was this day, De- December of COVID, and then like there was something else in the middle there. I guess nine eleven was was right there, mm-hmm. and then uh, it had the next three days, the next three deadliest days over the last couple of weeks here yeah. in in this COVID deal uh, for Americans. And I mean, it's just, it's really pretty staggering when you put it in that sort of context. Uh, so we, we definitely have that. We also have, uh, the department of justice has now officially sued the state of Alabama, uh, to over the state of our horrific prisons. Uh, and we also have the state of Alabama via Steve Marshall, uh, joining a lawsuit seeking to overturn the will of some 7 million Americans in a presidential election, uh, just because we don't really like how that turned out in those states. And we, really feel like that right. we are the snowflakes that you should listen to. So, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Person, your choice. Well, you know, let's start uh, Let's start with COVID-19. And I say that only because I think it is, it, it, as much as I see uh, the actions of our attorney general as a threat to our democracy, and as much as I see the actions of uh, you know, uh, the president um, and, and and these other attorney generals as being a threat as well. I think there is something very insidious with this virus, uh, about this virus. It's a it's an invisible killer. And it's not just a killer. Um, it has managed to. I think really almost cloud people's judgments, you know, um, you had the range of, which makes it even more dangerous. So the range of opinions 
that we see with people about something that should be fairly straightforward is frightening. And so that makes it even more of a potent killer. Um, so, and, and then I continue to, and I, and I don't know about you, Josh, but I continue to have friends and family members who are being either exposed to the virus or being infected by the virus. And I've even now, I, I think I now know two people who have been killed by the virus. So, or knew, you know, knew them. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how, and yet we have no national plan you know, which is astounding. We have a president who will take time to rant and rave on Twitter and in press conferences about everything else under the sun, other than this thing that is slowly killing Americans, you know, uh, day by day. And then we have a governor who um, does not seem to grasp that the numbers are going up and yet she's basically saying, let's stand pat. No action. No change. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with all of that. I mean, we are, I feel like we're in a, a period of idiocy uh, here that is, mm-hmm. that is pretty unparalleled, at least in, 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 in recent American history. Uh, you know, and, and I feel like when, uh, maybe in the future, hopefully, uh, that when this period is, is returned to in textbooks and, and is taught, uh, there are going to be a lot of people that are uh, portrayed very, very poorly, uh, rightfully so, yeah. uh, because of of the way they have handled things. I think, and uh, if if it doesn't uh, fit that way for Kiv out of this, uh, it, it should, it definitely should, uh, because you know, while while she has not been as idiotic as say a DeSantis or this, right. the the boy faced clown from Mississippi, um, you know, I. I do feel like she has quietly, um, <laughs> she's quietly moved into this thing where, you know, she doesn't, she's not going to do anything else. You know, mm-hmm. she just, it's like, well, there's no political gain for me to do anything else. So I'm just not going to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And which is, I think the, the worst possible thing somebody could say, because right now Kay Ivey has a lot of political cushion here that she could work with. You know, she's very well liked among Republicans and even the moderates uh, mm-hmm. there in, in this state yeah. really, really like her a lot. And, and so I feel like she has a lot of leeway and it, and in addition to that, it, it seems like she has the ability at this point to be smarter and to say things such as, look, you know, we're going to we're going to attack this thing. We're not we're not gonna just going to close everything down. We're not going to do that. You know, no, we, it doesn't, that doesn't work. Uh, so what we are going to do, though, is we're going to we're going to take some things that we know work, which is limiting the capacity at certain places indoors, limiting the capacity, you know, in restaurants and bars and that sort of thing. So we're going to we're going to do that and we're going to do all of these things and we're going to we're going to actually enforce this mask order, you know, that we've put out, we're going to, we're going to make the, there's going to be a penalty, uh, not just for the people who refuse to wear them, but also for businesses that don't enforce it yes. and kick people out. Yes. Uh, you know, we're, there, there's going to be a penalty that, that people have to pay for these sorts of things, similar to the seatbelt penalty. Yes. Uh, but you know, instead she was just like, man, you know, at some point people got to do what they got to do. And, and you can't say that. And because I think people get caught up in the personal responsibility of this, and that's fine. I, I'm all for, you know, if you're not doing the things that you should do, you catch the virus and you get sick, hey, that's on you. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that you're also 
forcing these poor people to go and work in those stores exactly. because they don't have any choice. Exactly. You know, they don't have any choice but to go wait those tables exactly. and, and to work their jobs. And so you're now putting them in harm's way at the same time you or at least your party is attempting to take away their right to sue for an unsafe environment. Right. Uh, there. So you can't have all of these worlds come together because, I mean, you're right. just screwing over the working people there. And, right. you know, uh, again, another good reason to unionize. So, you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, AFL-CIO, we appreciate hey, hey. that. Uh, hey, hey, AFL-CIO. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it, – that's what mm-hmm. I'm saying. That, that that This idiocy that we've, that we've encountered in this mm-hmm. that has allowed Kay Ivey's actions or inactions to be popular – is mind-boggling given what's and, happening. I mean, we have four thousand people who've died in this state since right. since what March, right? And 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 you also have, in addition to putting hundreds of thousands of people at risk who are in these frontline jobs, you're stressing the health system. Mm-hmm. We're making the health system. We are undermining the health system to such a degree that not only will it be a struggle for us to be able to care for people with COVID nineteen. It will be a struggle for us to deal with people who are who are dealing with car accidents, mm-hmm. who are dealing with gunshots, who are yes. who you know just the routine stuff that people need. Not even talking yeah. about elective surgeries. You know, yeah. I was in the post office. Uh, I think it was last week, and I overheard a man talking to a postal worker at the front counter, and it sounded like he worked for the for the morgue, the Madison County morgue. Because he said, uh, he said, look, um, uh, to the postal worker, he said, you know, uh, we actually have to order, we had to buy or order more refrigerated trucks. And, and I thought, my God, is it, is it now, are we now at the point in Madison County, if I heard what I heard correctly, are we now at the point in Madison County where the hospitals or the morgue can't accommodate the number of deaths that we have? Is that where we are? That would not be surprising. I mean, it, that has happened in a number of places, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the morgues have been so overwhelmed with, uh, you know, the deaths on top of deaths. And, you know, which, again, shoots another hole in the conspiracy theorist argument that, wow, these are people just dying of natural causes. And then they're just labeling them COVID right. because they get money out of it, you know, which is an idiotic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it. Uh, you know, we have a, a hell of a problem here. And, and when you have doctors telling you, listen, we're going to have to start picking and choosing who lives and dies here really soon. Right. And, uh, you know, and there are going to be some people who with treatable ailments who are going to die because we're not doing anything to mitigate this. And, and you know, I, that is a situation that is. I mean, it's just unimaginable in a, you know, in this time period with the technology and the advancements and the communication uh, that we have, uh, it's just, it's unimaginable that this is taking place right now. And, uh, you know, and, and the idiots that continue to run around saying that, you know, well, yeah, COVID, it's, it's it's no more deadly than the flu, you know, get over it. I mean, yeah, I I was Uh, stuck. I was I was stunned that uh, and I think I may have shared this with you before. I'm not sure, but I was stunned. I was in a doctor's office not too long ago, and uh, apparently there was some employee in the doctor's office. Did I tell you this? Some yeah, employee, yeah, yeah. There was, was, was not going to wear a mask. Yeah. yeah, that was was pushing back on the on the internal yeah. mandate. There, it, it's it's astounding to me that there are people with that mindset 
And and I, what I wish, Josh, what I wish is that um, whether it's the hospital system or or some of these local governmental entities who know better, who know better, mm-hmm. they should what they should do is they ought to take a video camera and they need to walk us through the morgue or they need yeah. to walk us through the hospital hospital corridors and show us the weeping you know, the people that are struggling to survive, take us into the hospital waiting rooms uh, or wherever they're sending the families to talk to these families, you know, so that people can understand this thing is real. Well, you know, they, they've done some of that uh, and it does. It doesn't. I haven't seen it. Does, you know, they just they move okay. on to some some other excuse. Mm. And I mean, just I mean, really, it, it you've reached a point where it became political because the president politicized it. Uh, you know, because he was so inept at handling it. I mean, what what has been done in this to to not address this virus that is it, just uh, honestly, it's it's astonishing. And the fact that people are giving him a pass on all of the lies that he's told about this thing is, I, I mean, when he said he could kill somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, I had no idea that he meant three hundred thousand people. Right. Uh, right and and, and right. they would give him a pass because they've done exactly that. They've You're done right. exactly that. And You're right. uh, you so know, what do you think it and, is? What do you think it is? I mean, seriously, uh, I think it's just pure. Pu- Really political. I think people have jumped on board this, and I think they they it's it's the same reason why people vote against their interest in the state. I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's that uh, you, there's no reason there is no justification for a working class person in the state of Alabama to vote for a Republican, and yet every single year the majority of them do it, and they can't explain to you why they do it. They know that it's probably killing them in the long term, and and it's costing them money in the long term, but they don't care. But, uh, they don't but care. Saying- they do it anyway. Right, right, right. And I and I think in in that case we're talking about people who have been conditioned mm-hmm. for generations to it's think the same a certain thing here. way. But I mean Trump is kind of a new phenomenon, don't you think? I mean I I don't think I think he plays upon the the things uh that are attractive to Alabamians, the same sort of George Wallace type uh, traits. Uh, here and I don't necessarily mean just the racism. I'm also talking about the rebelliousness of it, uh, that you're not going to tell me what to do, sort of thing. I'm an outsider. I mean, look at the people we've elected. I mean, Tommy Tuberville, for God's sakes, Will Ainsworth. You know these these people that come along that tell you that they're an outsider, even if they have no clue what they're doing, mm-hmm. uh, even if they have no you know ideas about how to govern or any ideas to fix any problem that we have ever. As long as they are an outsider and they haven't been there, we'll elect the hell out of them all day long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's what we've done, you know, and and it's given so many white people uh, the OK to say, hey, I don't like that. I have to respect black people or or I don't like that. I have to you know take down my Confederate flag. I don't like that. I have to, you know, to say, well, I know this hurts somebody's feelings, so I'm not going to do it. So I'm, I just don't have to do that anymore. Trump gives me an excuse not to do that. And I think that's the sort of mindset that they have. Uh, and and they've, they've been carried forward to this. They're attacking my guy out of, out of this with this virus here. It's all a hoax uh, because. If you believe it's a hoax, it means you don't have to believe that the man you support is a moron. So let me let me ask you this before we have to get out of this segment. For those who haven't figured it out by now, no. I'm a black guy. Josh is a white guy. <laughs> so right. when would you hear Josh condemning white people again? Put it in context. This is a white guy talking about the the failures of white Alabamians. So, Josh, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about being a white Alabamian these days? 
<laughs> well, uh, listen, I, I don't have any, um, how you are as a person mm-hmm. isn't defined to me by the color of your skin. Right. So, uh, you know, the fact that I'll tell you this, uh, this is the way I've always thought about it is if you tell, if you take any person in this state for the most part and you say it to them, okay, we're looking at two infant children. One is white. One is black. Can you tell me just based on the color of their skin, whether which one is smarter, which one is going to have a better future, which one is going to be the kinder or better leader? Uh, you know, can you do any of that? And I said, well, no, yeah, I can't do that. And I said, so basically they're, they're all equal. They're, they're a blank slate right now. And, and it's what we put into them. And it, the answer is almost always yes. From from people, I mean, you know, you'll you'll run into one out of a million idiots that just can't uh, admit that. But for the most part, it's always yes. And I said, so if that's the case, if that's the case, if we're all born equal, what in your mind makes you at some point in here base in some inequality or some thought on the color of that person's skin? That that's the part that has always been mind boggling to me, and so. So as a white person, that doesn't it. I, I don't I don't think of myself as this uh, as a representative of all of the idiots. Um, you know, I, I am ashamed appropriately of the people who I know who believe so ignorantly uh, like that. But I don't I don't put. I don't carry any of that with me. It's not my responsibility for them to be better. Hell, I grew up white in this state too. You know, if I can do it, you can do it as well. So, you know, stop being morons. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and of course I agree with that. Uh, but I just, I, I asked you that partially I was being facetious uh, uh, because there is this, you know, there is this uh, thing that we talk about in the black community where, you know, if yeah. one black person does yeah. something that's just dumb or evil, you know, then it's all, you know, mm-hmm. then all of us, you know, at least historically, and I think it's changed somewhat, but historically, you know, all of us would quake in fear. It was like, oh, my God, you know, this guy is screwed enough for the rest of us, you know. And I think now we're 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 sort of evolving out of that mindset. And I think and I think slowly but surely some especially younger whites. They don't think that way. But if you get to a certain generation of black people and a certain generation of white people, that's absolutely still the mindset. You know, it's like, I understand, you know, we, we got to slide out of here now and uh, we'll come okay. we'll come right back in just a minute. This is Alabama Politics. Welcome back to Alabama Politics This Week. I'm David Person, along with Josh Moon, and we are pleased to have with us one of, uh, I would say, one of our state's emerging leaders uh, when it comes to civil rights, human rights, uh, especially in the North Alabama area. Camille Bennett is with us. She is the founder of Project Say Something in the Shoals, and they have been at the forefront of leading the effort to remove the Confederate monument 
uh, in the Shoals. And we wanted to have her on. Josh and I wanted to have her on because uh, she, you may recall last week, we had a little tete-a-tete with the Secretary of State, uh, uh, John Merrill. Uh, and um, and Camille reached out to me after learning about our uh, little tete-a-tete with uh, Mr. Merrill. And she's, oh, I'm sorry. He said I could call him John, didn't yeah, he? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Call him okay. John. Okay. So, so after our tete-a-tete with John, uh, Camille reached out to me and uh, she said, yeah, I heard you guys had talked, uh, interviewed the Secretary of State. And you know he's been attacking me, right, for what we're doing. And I, and I really was not very familiar with it. I think I had heard something in passing, but as Camille and I began to talk, I realized we need to have her on uh, because she's being attacked by a government official in a way that I think, well, you know, just as we were challenging Merrill on, John on, uh, you know, we think is inappropriate. So that's a long introduction. Camille, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Sure. So uh, why don't you... Why don't you bring us up to speed, first of all, on what you and Project Say Something are doing in the shows? Project Say Something has actually been a a nonprofit organization for six years. We were founded in 2014 after the Ferguson riots. Um, It was really just a very organic movement in the beginning and me answering a call to action. Um, We've done a a number of things. Uh, We do anti-racism training. We've uh, created a database for Black history in the Shoals. Uh, Before that, we we did not have documented Black history beyond W.C. Handy. Uh, We didn't have a database, and we created also a resource packets for the schools. So when the children learn, they can learn about local Black history. Uh, We've been working on the monument campaign for over three years now. So it's been a long time. Uh, we do we we do panel discussions, awareness campaigns. Um, we're about to uh, move over to the 501c4 side soon. So we've, we've been a busy organization. Yeah, it sounds like you have been busy. Now, what is the, you know, what is the source of your beef? I shouldn't say your beef, but John Merrill's beef with you, because he's characterized your organization. I believe he used the term liberal racist organization, if I'm not mistaken, to characterize your organization. What, what, what's his beef with you? I don't think it's fair to make it a personal beef, okay. right? I've Whenever someone says, why is this person mad at you? I don't think they're mad at me. I think they're mad okay. at what I represent. I'm a, I'm a black woman. I founded an organization that focuses on racial justice that it, with a specific mission to eradicate it. Um, and I've not behaved like a nice little woman. <laughs> <I've> been, <laughs> we have been very loud, very bold, and very unapologetic about our demands. And I think that represents something to men sometimes, especially white men, um, conservative white men in Alabama. So uh, when you ask what's his beef with me, I think uh, his beef with me is his beef with any black woman that's here uh, with the mission that I'm here for. So before I toss it to Josh, you, he, you don't think that, 
he has a problem. I mean, surely you think that it's more than just what you symbolize that he's got a problem with, because he's also said something about, um, or at least in his conversation with Josh and me, uh, or our interview with him, he he said something about black nationalist organizations, or at least he alluded to that. Like there's some uh, members of, 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 or some entities in Black Lives Matter that believe in black superiority, I think is what he was saying. Something Something akin to that. Do you think that he's got some kind of misconception or misinterpretation of what your organization stands for? Well, that's obvious. I mean, we're, <laughs> if, he, if he was paying attention, we're a very diverse co- coalition. Honestly, the majority of our supporters are white. Uh, our, 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 da- our membership base reflects our, our, our demographics here. So we are a predominantly white community and city. And that's what, honestly, our supporters look like. Now, our, our, we, again, we, our board is black and we, we're, we're here for black liberation. But the idea of it being a, a black nationalist organization, again, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and I haven't spent very much time trying to unpack um, why he chose to single project, say something out beyond the idea that that's what bullies do. Right. So if you're a bully, he, he received a letter from over 20 organizations, but he found it necessary to narrow it down to one. And then on his Twitter page, he decided to narrow it down even further, not to one organization, but to one 135 pound woman. So that that looks like bullying. Well, I'll tell you, I find it very, very hard to believe that John Merrill's got something wrong. I mean, it just is uh, so out of character for him to get something so completely wrong as <laughs> the, the mission of the group, the makeup of the group, and everything else. Uh, I Actually, I so it's a, a severe sarcasm because it, that is right in his wheelhouse to get that 100% wrong. But that... You sort of answered my question because I was, you know, I've, I've spent a, a fair amount of time in the in the Florence area uh, there, um, and and I was going to say it doesn't seem like the Florence the Florence area when you think of that particular area, Northwest Alabama. You don't think of it as being, say, a diverse uh, sort of group of people there. It, it's certainly not as diverse as, say, you know, Montgomery or or, or uh, Birmingham or you know even Huntsville. Uh, so I was, how have y'all been received in, in Florence? I've always loved that, that city and felt like it was a, a pretty progressive city. Uh, so it, uh, I'm hoping that, that you have been, you've been received pretty, pretty well there. I, I think that that's a gross mischaracterization of, of my, my hometown. Uh-huh. Uh, we are far from progressive. Okay. In fact, our county, um, in our county, we have the League of the South. Right. Right. The League of the South was at Charlottesville. Um, We definitely have always had white nationalist activity. In fact, in 2017, uh, the KKK showed up in full regalia at uh, a pride event that I was actually speaking at. Only black speaker there. Um, So I think that the the Florence area is seemingly liberal and has certainly um, done a lot of marketing. Uh And uh, done, a, done a lot of strategic marketing because it looks like you, you thought so, too, uh, to say that it's liberal. But I think when you look at the statistics, uh, the, the, the poverty inequities, um, if you look at the wealth gap, if you look at how difficult it's been to take down uh, a symbol of white supremacy here and all the other 
trials and tribulations we face. I would say that we're definitely not a liberal city. However, we do have progressive activity here. So we have a ton of support um, in terms of community members. Um, we've built progressive coalitions and we move together uh, quite a bit. And I think that uh -huh. within itself is liberal, but that's the people. That's not the structures of power. So why why do you think they why do you think they market towards a I mean we're we're obviously in in deep red Alabama what what is the what's the benefit of them marketing the themselves as this progressive uh, this progressive city is that do they feel like I mean do you feel like that that is something that attracts people to Florence I think if you're going to market a city as progressive I think you can certainly so you kind of get the best of both worlds, right? You can market a city right. as progressive and get some progressive people here, but then you could still deliberately not change the structures of power. So mm -hmm. it, it can look progressive, but not be progressive. Um, I can think of a multitude of examples, but that's, that's the best explanation I can sure. give. So it, it 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 seems as though though that there has there has been some changes of late. Uh, uh, there was a, a change in mayor, uh, right, uh, recently in Florence. Um, that that seems as though, and, and you, maybe you can correct me on that as well. It seemed as though that that was a a, a progressive change, maybe not as progressive as as you and I would probably uh, like, but uh, it seemed to be moving more in that direction. So, uh, do you feel like you're, you're making some ground? I do, I do. We've come a long way. You know, when, again, I'm going to be a hard sell on, 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 trying, on saying the city is progressive and we're where we need to be. I will say that, yes, we 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 made we made some traction. Um, we were our organization, though we are nonpartisan. Again, our mission is to eradicate systemic racism and structural racism and all the nuances that go with it. So when our current mayor was uh, really just behaving like an antagonist and a counter protester and um, and really rearing his ugly head. We were very open and honest with the community about what that was and, and what that looked like. And we we uh, had conversations with him, you know, on video and that kind of thing. And that really uh, made a difference and helped the community understand how uh, structural racism can happen and how and how to identify it in your political leaders. Camille, I wanted to know, um, what are your future plans uh, as it relates to not only the, the ongoing effort to remove the statue, which I 100% fully support, and we were able to see that happen here in, in Madison County, but also what are your future plans as it relates to this newfound spotlight that you have, national spotlight that you have had, albeit perhaps brief, due to John Merrill's uh, public attack of you. Like not so much you as an individual, but what, what, what's next for Project Say Something as it relates to the statue and as it relates to the, the, to the attention that John Merrill has brought to your organization and its efforts by attacking you the way he has nationally and and statewide. Well, as an organization, um, 
we really, we were just beginning our anti-racism training and we got hit with COVID like many, that's, that's probably a very common story. So we have that. We were just beginning to roll out the Shoals Black History Project into the schools, got gain commitment. So we've got to continue that effort. Since COVID, we've uh, launched the Alabama Child Care Coalition, which is a really powerful effort. Um, Alabama child care providers are disproportionately black and we are women and there are some significant issues with the way uh, policy affects us. I, I, I say us because my husband and I own three child care centers, um, the way policy affects us, um, the access we have to information and how decisions are made. So uh, when COVID hit, we realized that there, there, there was a significant need and we just started to scramble and reach out to child care providers and ultimately uh, start to approach decision makers about what we need um, on the ground level. So there's that also. And then, like I mentioned, um, we're also launching a 501c4, which is which is a version of our organization, but will a, a version that will have. Uh, more political power. So we'll be able to do a lot more politically. Right. So what is that? And I guess that's really what I want to get to. What is that? What do you see that? How do you see that playing out? What does that mean? Having more political power? What are you going to be trying to achieve? There, there are so many things we would try to achieve from, again, always from the lens of our mission. So we'll be able to identify racist uh, policies, um, policies, political leaders that have seem to have major issues with structural racism, how it affects the people and then advocate become, you know, advocate on the, on the state level for policy change. So as a 501c3 right now, the advocacy you cannot do, you can certainly address issues, but, but as far as uh, trying to influence legislation, that's, that's not possible. Uh, and so with a 501c4, we'll be able to do more of that, if that makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. Josh, I think that I, we are. I was gonna, I was also going yeah, go to say to, to that to that end, as an organization, we've always been very active in voter registration. I mean, we did absentee voting events for two months. So it just it just expands that part of us. And honestly, um, through the monument campaign, you know, we were again, we're, we're focused on our mission and we look around and we're like, whoa. And our mayor that we've been <laughs> been been needling at for a while about this monument is jumping is really um, showing some really problematic behavior. Right. Violating our first trying to violate our First Amendment rights and refusing to address the moral issue and refusing to de denounce the counter protesters that are threatening our lives. And so we were transparent about that and we did it in a big way. And it seems that he lost support. So that helped us understand what's necessary, right? A lot of times um, grassroots movements are often overlooked when it comes to political power and how things happen. But we, we, we want to we get into a little bit more of that. Okay. Okay. Well, it, it sounds like to me, Josh, that we are witnessing, I think, the beginning of a... Uh, 
of what I hope will be a long, productive, successful uh, career on the progressive side of Alabama politics with Camille Bennett and Project Say Something. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and and I, I certainly hope that it is uh, is that, and I hope that uh, that she continues to antagonize uh, uh, people like like John Merrill and and so many others that that kind of cash in on on the sort of racism that has that has held us back for so long. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree, Camille. Thank you for joining us today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a long time, so it's good to good to reconnect and talk with you and to see what you and Project Say Something are doing. Thank you. Thank you, Camille. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Welcome back in Alabama Politics this week, Josh Boot, David Person, and we are joined now by, uh, uh, in my opinion, the the best reporter in the state of Alabama, uh, a guy that I worked with for uh, for many years, and who somehow managed to overcome and in, and endure uh, me working alongside of him uh, for for some time. It's Brian, the Montgomery Advertiser's Brian Lyman is with us. Uh, Brian, we really really do appreciate you taking some time this afternoon. Hey, it's a, pl- a pleasure to be with you guys. One of the one of the main reasons uh, I wanted to get you on, uh, you know, in addition to kind of talking about the, the Department of Justice stuff that's gone on, uh, but uh, also the advertiser, and I assume Gannett, uh, is behind a, pro- a project called Confederate Reckoning. Um, and I've been reading some of some of the stuff that has uh, been produced there. And one of the more fascinating things to me was has been the textbook series about what children in this state and around the South were taught uh, about the Confederacy and slavery and all of this stuff. And we've all heard these horror stories. And so I guess um, uh, the easiest way to do to do that, uh, to do this is for you just to kind of explain uh, what what the project is and, and kind of what y'all have found. Sure. Well, we've um, I think as you know, as you know, and you, you were at the advertiser when we started this, but um, we've we've been looking at our pasts as newspapers, you know, in this era where I think, you know, we are trying to have conversations, honest conversations about race and racism and the poison that racism has created in, in America. We've been trying to look at really like how structures of white supremacy were enabled, reinforced, what what have you, by this lost cause propaganda that really you can see you can see it sprouting as early as 1866, like a year after the end of the Civil War. But it really got going in the 1890s and just moved and just moved forward from there. So, uh, you know, we've been looking at like how this Confederate iconography and these myths about the Confederacy really pervaded, you know, know, I mean, I I think monuments are obviously the one thing that everybody knows about because those are big, those are public and everyone can see that. But the same forces that were really, you know, colonizing these public spaces to put up these statues of, Southern generals, you know, these monuments to white supremacy, they were making a very, very concerted push to also get into the textbooks and tell the lost cause story of of the South. And 
that pervaded a popular teaching of of this of that era and for you know many <clears throat> excuse me i mean you're you're looking at at least 80 years and i think you've talked about how like you know in like when you were in school you were still getting this mangled version of southern history um in elementary school so we've been looking at i mean we're trying to really come to grips with like how this came about and really why it how pervasive it became and i mean i think like you know really kind of like the short answer to it is these these teachings really reinforced the segregation that sprouted up the authoritarian jim crow governments that you know ruled the south really until you know the 1960s and you know and you know whose effects we were still dealing with today um I mean, I'd say that, and you know, I'm, I'm going to stop talking for us. <laughs> I'm going to catch my breath in a minute, but I, I mean, I think, you know, really, I, I think from what I've done, you know, both on this series and on other stories that we've written is just how all these structures really conspire to rob African-Americans of agency to pretend that politically active black Americans are nothing more than dupes for outsiders or marks um, that black Americans simply can't make their own decisions. Like this is what all that propaganda was really pushing toward, like, you know, trying to denigrate these, these, you know, you know, troubled, but often very successful reconstruction era governments where whites and blacks served together. Um, you know, like to talk about, like, to, you know, to, to present these, you know, absurd stories about how slavery was a benign and maybe sometimes even a positive institution for people mm -hmm. who suffered it. Um, you know, I, I think it really goes down to this idea that these there are these structures in place that were trying to rob or trying to deny black Americans agency. And that's really what I think they all, I think, I think really that's what we're trying to look at. Like just how this, like how this all played out. I remember back in school and, and hearing some of the absolute nonsense that I, that I was taught in school. I mean, it is so, so utterly ridiculous. I, I mean, to think about the the slavery was oh the, the, these kindly people that it was like you know almost honestly God it was like uh, black people showed up on their doorstep and they gave them you know food and water and a place to live and oh by the way let them work in the fields for a little while you know and and it was that that sort of image was placed in in my head and in the heads of all of these you know uh, kids that were in classes with me I I, I it's so insane mm -hmm. uh you know uh, to think about this and the idea that we could overcome that is even worse what if you looking back at some of these textbooks are there examples of i mean just horrific examples of this sort of thing going on for for a while well i mean i mean i think you know the one we looked at what i looked at was an alabama textbook published in 1961 i, I mean i think the most ridiculous assertion they made was that slavery was the earliest form of social security in the United States. I mean, that's, I mean, that shows a basic misunderstanding of what slavery is and also what social security is, but that isn't also, but that's also an argument that you could see. I mean, like when I was growing up, I was a real civil war buff and I read a lot of books about the civil war that 
were really that that still reflected a lot of that kind of like patronizing attitude toward toward that. So there there was this there was a sense that there was a sense like throughout the culture that these white masters, yeah, yes, slavery was bad, but these white masters were obliged to provide food, to provide shelter, to provide comfort to these folks when they were old. And you can read slave yeah. narratives collected right. by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s, right. and, that's right. a, and that's absolute nonsense. I mean, they talk about beatings. They talk about being beaten because they were visiting their girlfriends, like on neighboring plantations. Um you know, malnutrition, uh, poor shelter. I mean, it, it goes it goes on and on and on and on. Rapes, castrations. I mean, and, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump in here because when you said <laughs> a 1961 textbook tried to present slavery as a as a, a basically a variation or a precursor to Social Security. The three the three words that went through my mind that I can say on the podcast are what the hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's absolutely outrageous. Mm-hmm. So so let me okay, now I grew up in the north. Mm-hmm. I've lived in the south, you know, for thirty I think thirty nine years now. Mm-hmm. But I grew up in the north. And and so I was really even though these thirty nine years have been a beautiful experience overall. Mm-hmm. I have been, I have found it stunning and sometimes jarring and sometimes just infuriating to see uh, the types of things that we're talking about mm-hmm. and the various manifestations of white supremacy and white privilege. Here's one example that, that goes to what we're talking about today, uh, Brian and Josh. So, um, Ex-wife number one was a teacher. Uh, yeah, Josh, I said ex-wife number one. Yes, he was a teacher. It always makes me so happy when you do that. Go ahead. <laughs> she was a teacher in the Decatur City School System years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the day that she came home and told me the story about how uh, apparently it was a regular part of the curriculum there to have the daughters of the Confederacy visit classrooms and talk to children. And she said one such daughter went into her classroom and among other things began to tell the black children that they should be glad. They should be glad about slavery. They should be grateful that their ancestors were enslaved because that happened in one of my classes in school. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Wow. What you guys heard from that UDC woman was a direct descendant of arguments that slaveholders themselves made. Like you can look up letters right. written by a South Carolina senator named uh, James Henry Hammond, who was. I'm not going to go into all the evil crap he did because he did a lot of evil crap. But I mean, this was a, Mm -hmm. this was an argument that slaveholders made all the time. Like, look, this was a positive good for, for African American. And and obviously they were not asking African Americans, Hey, how do you feel about this? And the logic was, you know, uh, we saved you from, you know, the horrors of tribalism in Africa and from the poverty of Africa and also, by the way, 
uh, you were able to become a Christian and, and, you know, become, you know, believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, you know, and, and of course, all of that is such hogwash because first of all, Christianity actually originated in Africa. You know, if you, if you, if you look at, uh, where, uh, Christianity, uh, if you look at where Israel is and, and Egypt, you know, you can't tell me that Israel is not an extension of the African continent. But even if you don't want to subscribe to that point of view, let's be clear about the fact that, that, uh, the, uh, that, that the, you know, the, the Ethiopian, the Coptic Ethiopian church, you know, predates all Christianity in the United States of America. So the idea that there was no Christianity on the African continent is absurd, if that even matters, if that's even important. Now, let's go a step further. The colonization of the African nations created much of the impoverishment, much of the lack, much of the discord that we have seen on the African continent through decades and decades. I'm not saying that all of it can be attributed to colonization, but colonization played a major role, and I would say the defining role in much of it. Uh, you know, yes, there was tribalism, and sure, that, that was a smaller factor. But, you know, all of that, all of what this woman said was just straight BS hogwash. And yet that's what they were teaching the children. And that's and and that was what was taught. I mean, we we had a uh, I mean, I found a quote from the president of the United Daughters of the Confederacy as early as 1900, where she was telling a group of people like we've got to I mean, we basically have to control the books that go into our students hands so they know what's so they know what's going on. They, they, so they know our version of the Civil War and Reconstruction and Right. What I mean, and again, I mean, like the thing I, I I should point out too. I mean, and it's I think it's obvious, but it's also important, which is that black voices were just nowhere to be found, and and nobody really thought about considering black voices. Like even as late like at this 1961 textbook that was used in Alabama. I mean, they mention. They mentioned Booker T. Washington. They make passing mention of jo- of George Washington Carver. But that's it. And they're not and you don't really hear their voices in the in the text. I mean, there there was a deliberate effort to exclude these voices simply because they were just considered they were not they were just considered unimportant and irrelevant to the task, the task at hand. And let's and let's also, Brian and Josh, let's also illuminate why Mm -hmm. Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver were included. Mm -hmm. They were included, you know, not just because it's hard to justify ignoring them. They were included because Booker T. Washington was the most accommodationist of all of the Negro leaders of the early part of the 20th century. And I'm using the term Negro leaders because that's what they would have called them back then. But all the black leaders, you know, he was the most, he, he, in fact, he and William Hooper Counselor were both uh, who was the founder of Alabama A&M University, were both considered uh, to be in the accommodationist camp as opposed to W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, William Monroe Trotter and others who were, you know, attacking, Ida B. Wells attacking, you know, uh, you know, white privilege and white supremacy. Uh, so so Tuskegee was given and, and Booker T. Washington was sort of given a pass. And that's not to diminish 
his importance to black people, his accomplishments, but I'm just saying ideologically they were more acceptable than some of these other people would have been. You know, I'll tell you, man, um, what, what bothers me more than anything else is, is hearing David talk uh, about this uh, and about this, this black history uh, and the, and the figures who were there and, and what happened and who these people were. And to know that for someone like me, who I honestly in the nineties, I was you know in high school in the nineties. I don't know any of that. You know, I did, I was never taught. I mean, I know some of it now, but I was never taught any of that. I never, you know, Rosa Parks was a tired seamstress on the bus who just didn't want to get out of that white section that day, you know, and, uh, you know, which is almost a hundred percent wrong. You know, I mean, it just is, uh, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it you know, the fact that you don't know who, who Fred Gray is and, you know, and who, what, what role that all of these people, uh, you know, Edie Nixon and all these guys that it wasn't until I got to Montgomery and, 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 actually walked around and learned about this stuff that I knew any of these things. I mean, some people, I think it depended in, in some instances where you went to school. I think some, uh, the kids in, around Montgomery and, and stuff, I think they all had a better idea and understanding of that because they had those field trips to civil rights places and that sort of stuff. But the kids that grew up in South Alabama and in North Alabama, I, I don't think we did. I don't think I, I know I didn't. And so it, I mean, that's terrible to me. It's just so, it's so horrible. And like like David, I'm I'm a I'm also I was also educated in the North, and I mean I, I I look back I look back on the history classes I taught, and I'm grateful for it because you know like in the mid '80s I was getting I mean not a lot, but I was getting probably more 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 Black history than most people did. Like I, I had I had to write a report on Ida B. Wells when I was in third or fourth grade. So I, I mean like like that. So. So I am grateful for that. You know, I do want to come back to something, though, because we talk about like how we didn't get access to this. And, um, you know, when the United Daughters of the Confederacy were doing this stuff, I mean, we, we should I mean, you know, they they definitely played a major role. But we shouldn't say, like, they're the only ones who are doing this. Like if you were to look at white academia for the first 50 years of the 20th century, you would not find anything to seriously challenge what the UDC was doing. You could go to a college, at, you could go to Columbia University and attend classes there, and the professors were going to tell you something that was not too far from what the UDC was saying. I mean, this was pervasive. It's called the Dunning School. Like This was pervasive throughout you know, teaching. Now, um, ne- uh, what was called at the time Negro history starts like in the 1910s and the 1920s. But it takes a very long time to get through to school textbooks and, and you know, like and and this neo-abolitionist school that develops in the 1950s that really seriously challenges the reconstru- the, the old reconstruction narrative like that takes decades to get down. That, that takes decades to get to get down there, too. So, you know, I mean. I mean, like, you know, like we can uh, like we should note like what the UDC did here. But we also should note that they had a lot. I mean, there wasn't a lot for other people to draw from, like any competing traditions to draw from in in this in this regard, which is a tragedy because this history is just I mean, so deep and so rich and so fascinating. I mean, their stories of I mean, you know, like their stories of resistance, like both big and small and of 
you know, what American identity truly means. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's just, it's something that everyone benefits from learning from. And we definitely need to make sure that, I, you know, I, I hope my children get exposed. I mean, I, right. I bought, I bought like my six year old, like I bought her a book about um, Benjamin Turner, who was a, uh, the first African-American elected to Congress, um, mm-hmm. you know, like from Alabama during Reconstruction. And I mean, you know, she's still reading her Pinkalicious books, but I'm hoping, you know, someday. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hey, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, I think we would be doing a disservice here if we did not. First of all, I mean, check, read the series in the Montgomery Advertiser here. Uh, mm-hmm. But but also, in addition to that, if you could. Uh, go over where where y'all found some of these letters, some of these textbooks, some of the things that that played into uh, into the research here, but specifically things that were that people could use, even teachers, because uh, a lot of teachers listen to to this podcast, um, and, and that, where they could find examples of this this history and the history that was lost. Well, we have a not just a state treasure, but a national treasure in the Alabama Department of Archives and History. They've digitized many documents, um, you know, like narratives, um, you know, like just, you know, accounts of, of slavery. I go whenever I'm writing one of these history projects, like that's my first stop. And I always go there and they have a, an enormous online presence. that's definitely worth using. The Library of Congress has digitized the uh, enslaved uh, the, the the narratives of enslaved people that were collected in the 1930s. Um, so those are all online. Those are all worth reading. You should note with the WPA narratives, you have to be like you have to be um, you have to use those judiciously because a lot of scholars have talked about like you know like when the WPA sent people out to talk to these former enslaved people, you know they they sent out. They, they tended to send out like they not all the interviewers were white, but probably the majority of them were. And, you know, the, the enslaved folks like they've done studies that show that like people who were formerly enslaved, they were more forthcoming about their experiences with black interviewers than with white interviewers. So so if, if you use the narratives like within that perspective, I mean, like it's it, they can be incredibly insightful and interesting. And and like really oftentimes sobering as to like what what happens would happen with these folks. And, uh, you know, there's any number of books. I mean, I tell people read Eric Foner's Reconstruction because that is the user's manual to the United States. Like that will explain a lot to you about like why the United States and even specifically why Alabama is the way it is, <laughs> um, you know, like in the last um in the last 50 or 60 years, a lot of scholars have started focusing on how enslaved people negotiate, negotiated is probably not the right word, but they, how they pushed back on their enslavements, like, like during their daily lives, like how they, you know, like, like how they basically like managed to impose limits on what they would do, like how they would resist, you know, like, like it doesn't make the, the fact of slavery any less horrific, but it does point to the fact that these are men and women, human beings who were really, you know, doing their best to ameliorate the terrible situation that they were in. So, and I'm going to, I'm going to toss some books in here too. When I was a child, uh, and and I don't want to, and I don't want to mischaracterize things. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I got some great uh, exposure to black history in school in the North, Mm -hmm. but what I did have was a father 
who in a, when he didn't have one of his feet up my behind over other things, he made sure that I had uh, books like Great Negroes Past and Present, which was, you know, uh, in the 1960s, that was like the book to have to really walk you through the great black personalities, not just of, of the United States, but even of the world. And so that was a that was a seminal book. Also, I would commend to people and there there are a few books I could commend. I was looking on my bookshelf here, but two that I'm going to commend, one that is very germane to Alabama history and is a brilliant book, really just just done a couple of uh, within the past couple of years, is called At the Dark End of the Street. At the Dark End of the Street by Daniel McGuire. And you want to learn about who Rosa Parks really was, you know, Josh, going back to your point, Mm -hmm. she fleshes her out in this book so well as she looks at the larger issue of how rape and sexual assault was used to terrorize black women and their families. So that's a brilliant book. And then uh, the other one that I saw that caught my eye on my bookshelf that I, oh, yes, if you want to understand how, if a person wants to understand how uh, in the pro in the post reconstruction era going into the twentieth early twentieth century, how slavery uh, morphed into uh, legal activities such as convict leasing, for example, and and illegal but um, but overlooked crimes like land theft. You should check out the book by Leon Litwack called Trouble in Mind. Trouble in Mind. It's a it's a it's, it's a real I think exceptionally good expose of what was going on in that time period and how black people uh, in post Reconstruction America and early twentieth century America were disenfranchised. I have one question, Brian, before we go that I want to ask you. One final question that I'll ask. And then Josh will close us out. Um, what has the reaction been to your series from white Alabama and from black Alabama? It, my email is running about 50 percent, um, you know, like indignation. Like, oh, I was I was never taught that. Like, I, I, like, I mean, like indignation, like, oh, I, I can't believe you would say this. I know that's not how history was taught to me. Somebody um, signed off one of their letters w- to me with like have a COVID filled day, which was amusing. A, a, a lot of it has been very positive, you know, appreciative, you know, like just, you know, like, hey, work there. I've gotten like I've gotten like emails from people saying, yeah, that that's exactly what my education was like. Can you recommend anything for me to, um, you know, read about that? So, I mean, it's really I'd say like this textbook series, because I've, I've written about I've written these history pieces in the past. And I mean, typically like like the, the, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive on, on them. Like this one is really like touched some this one has really touched some people's nerves, um, like like in this one. But I guess, you know, we're always looking for engagement. And we're definitely we're definitely getting that. I, I, I did want to <laughs> add real quick before before we go, David, but because you touched on something really important too, which which I tried to emphasize in in the story I wrote um, for this series, which is that, you know, you know. African-American communities did not passively accept this propaganda and just say, yeah, I guess that's how it was. I mean, there was a rich tradition of 
families and communities passing this history down and keeping this history alive and providing this counterpunch to to that, which is something I think we should all I think we should all appreciate. I mean, I mean oftentimes, like we, we sometimes think of this kind of stuff as just falling, you know, just basically falling on a field and then, you know, like growing without any pushback but there was a lot of pushback to it throughout you know, throughout the time that it was being disseminated awesome awesome all right we'll we'll get you get you out of here with uh with this uh, you know because i did want to mention the doj uh, uh lawsuit here and i and and i'm gonna guess that you would agree that what we have been discussing ties directly into this lawsuit uh, and the state of Alabama's prisons, uh, as we look back at the history of, I think one of the books David mentioned was uh, basically tying, uh, you know, slavery and the, and all that into the legal practices of you know convict leasing and everything else that we've done, uh, and and into the state of of our prisons, which I don't think that there's any doubt in anyone's mind the fact that they are a majority black prisoners here leads us to this level of indifference that is so prevalent in the community that have has allowed this to take place. And I guess, uh, you know, in, however long you'd like to take, uh, where, where are we with this lawsuit and, and what do you feel like the ultimate outcome will be? So the lawsuit was just filed yesterday. That comes after, as you know, we've had two DOJ reports about the state of the prisons in Alabama, one in April of 2019 that detailed all the violence that was going on, one that came out in July that dealt with the um, excessive force, uh, the, the excessive force used by uh, correctional officers against inmates in the prisons. Um, I mean, we're going to court and it's, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's been interesting to watch the divergent reactions of our state officials. Now, KIV when KIV, our governor has taken a very more like a very cautious approach, just said, we're talking about this. We're trying to work on this. Please look at the prisons that we are. Please look at the prisons we are trying to build to ameliorate this situation. Attorney General Steve Marshall back in July um, said, well, we are negotiating, but we're not going to enter a, a consent decree because that's insert, you know, like whatever you know, you want to say about federal tyranny or, or, or whatnot um, <laughs> in a presidential election year, by the way. You know? right, yeah, and, right. I mean, I think, and, you know, he pushed back against it, like in a statement last night where he said um, we were negotiating and the DOJ knows they're going well beyond the law. You know, I, I mean, once Marshall said we're not going to enter a consent decree, I mean, there may be legal ex- there I'm, I'm sure there are legal experts there are corrections effort, experts who know more than I do but I don't know what other remedy outside of a lawsuit there is besides a consent decree so if you tell the federal government we're not going to enter a consent decree with you and the federal government has found evidence that inmates eighth amendment rights are being violated then I don't know what what choice you leave prosecutors except to file a lawsuit. And I mean, and I mean, and let's, let's center this too on, you know, cause I mean, when we have this discussion, I mean, obviously we talk about the costs that this will mean for the state, you know, in terms of like what, like what what receivership could mean, but let's, I mean, we have to look at the inmates too. I mean, you know, we have many reporters in the state. I'm going to plug a few of them. I mean, Melissa Brown, Eddie Burkhalter, Beth Shelburne, many other people who have talked to inmates who just described this, you know, this hell of, you know, drugs being like 
easily available of, you know, I, I, Melissa talked to an inmate who recalled like seeing like a, like an inmate in a wheelchair get jumped in the, um, in the prisons. I mean, these people are, I mean, and you know, I've talked, I've personally talked to, you know, like the loved ones of inmates, you know, who like in April, who were just terrified about what COVID was going to do to their loved ones within the prisons. And I mean, you know, do many, if not do the vast majority of people in the prisons deserve to be there? Probably. Does that mean they deserve to be exposed to violence and illness? No, that's a violation of that's a violation of their rights. So, uh, you know, when you look at when you look at it that way and DOJ is certainly looking at it that way. I mean, have you read the have you read the July report that they that they issued about excessive force? Yeah. So. So, I I mean, you know, like if DOJ is making those assertions and Mm -hmm. really and the state is at least one state official is saying, like, we're not going to play ball, then um, they have no choice but to bring a lawsuit. Yeah, and you know, normally the feds don't bring a lawsuit unless the feds can win a lawsuit. And uh, you know, and and ten and in these such cases, uh, it, they're going to be hard pressed to find a judge to agree with the state of Alabama on a lot of this stuff. Uh, I mean, because it's so well documented. I mean, you you read through that July report, and I mean, it's you know, there, there's names, there's there's dates, there's I mean, there there are witnesses. There, it's just it's it, it's idiotic the idea that we're not going to we're going to get out of this in some way, but. Uh, listen, uh, you know, uh, Brian, we, we really appreciate you. I know I kept you longer than I promised that I would, uh, but the, the conversation was, was so good. And I mean, really yeah. it was, man, it yeah. was, it was, it was top notch. And, and, and I hope we can get you back on someday and, uh, and, and talk about, you know, just whatever you'd like to talk about. Okay. So, <laughs> well, that's that, that, that. <laughs> Okay. Then. Great meeting you, Brian. Great meeting <laughs> yeah. you, man. Great yeah, that was uh, Brian. Brian is uh, good, man. He uh, he knows his stuff. Uh, puts a lot of a lot of time and effort into into knowing things, you know, which is always nice uh, when you have somebody who's reporting stuff. Not you know, not like me. You know, I just throw stuff out there and you know, not, not like that. Uh, but he he is he he's he's good. He's very very good, as you can tell from yeah. that. And um, and so it's it's nice. And and he brought up. Uh, our our right wing nut of the week, uh, which is Steve mm-hmm. Marshall, uh, this week, and uh, for for many things, but the one thing I want to make very clear here, uh, and I hope is never lost in all of the idiocy of Steve Marshall and all of the other things that are talked about with this DOJ lawsuit over our prisons and with his stupid lawsuit against the the uh you know the other states and all this and the and the Facebook lawsuit which has 48 states uh signed up in an antitrust lawsuit against Facebook Steve Marshall not one of them uh <laughs> so one thing I want to make clear is these you know, when when this report came out uh, from the DOJ and Steve Marshall said his office was ambushed by it, this investigation has been going on for four right. years. Uh, he was ambushed, ambushed yeah. by it. His yeah. office has tried uh, and has been in the courtroom there for every single one of these lawsuits by inmates that have made it to federal court or whatever court that they've made it to. Every single one of them. His office has been in that courtroom representing the state there against these prisoners who have alleged and brought clear evidence in a lot of these cases, clear evidence of abuses, uh, 
uh, of uh, of all uh, contraband going in and out of the prisons, of uh, you know lack of food, lack of you know basic necessities, uh, lack of cleanliness, dangerous conditions, all of these things. They've been present for all of it, and he's le- never lifted a single finger to do anything about any of it. So to hell with that mm-hmm. guy. Yeah, well, and he's following in the grand tradition of his predecessors, because by and large, from what I understand, at least uh, in the 90s, for sure, uh, I know that, uh, that, that some of these things that we're, that we're talking about today, Josh, were not only being discussed publicly, and not only was Alabama facing uh, scrutiny from the federal government and others over but I actually know uh, people who have been in the prison system in this state. And my understanding from them and their family members is that, uh, you, know, it, you know, it is absolutely without question that Al- the Alabama prison system is the precursor to hell. I mean, it is, it, is, uh, it, is, it is not a place, you know, it is not a place where, you know, justice is being practiced through rehabilitation or, you know, it is it is beyond uh, it's dangerous and and it's dangerous to men. It's dangerous to women. It's dangerous to people uh, of whatever sexual orientation or gender identity they have. It's just a dangerous place. And so uh, I don't understand how how we can take such pride. And, I, and I'm, I'm about to go there. I'm about to I'm about to criticize my fellow Christians. I don't understand how we can claim to be this godly state, this place where you got, you know, churches on almost every street corner, it seems like in in many cities. And yet we allow people to be treated as less than human in prison. I just don't understand it. I do not understand how those two things coexist. Well, they, they really can't. Uh, you know, I really, really logically, they cannot. And, um, and, and even beyond that, just the, you know, just the horrific stories that have come out of there, uh, that continue to come out every day. Uh, and, and at this point, there's a lot of people that know somebody who's been in prison, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, for opioid addiction issues, uh, you know, whatever that, that may be. Um, you know, and for, you know, just a number of things in, in this state, especially where poverty levels are high and, and people do a lot of things to try to get by. Uh, you know, uh, we know a lot of people that have been in, in and out of prison over the course of time. And, and it, it is a life altering experience in which very few people come out of those prisons rehabilitated to any degree whatsoever. Uh, in most cases, as a matter of fact, they come out worse. Uh, so we're basically reverse rehabilitation, but in the, in here, uh, you know, we're, we're sending people in there and they come out worse criminals than they were than they went in when they went in. Uh, and, and that is, if you care at all about your fellow man or just about your society in general, you got to fix that at some level and you've got to care enough to want to fix that. And, and we, we clearly don't, and it's an indictment of all of us, but most of all, if you are a person of Steve Marshall's position, 
and the attorney general and, and you know what I go Luther Strange and everybody else before him. If you're a person in those positions and you and you know what's taking place and you don't do a finger to lift, you know, to, to stop the extortion racket, the, uh, the narcotics flowing in and out of those places. If you don't do anything from that that position of power, you're as culpable as the people Amen, who are doing brother. it, Amen. in my opinion. Preach it. So. Preach it, Reverend Josh. Preach yeah. it. That's right. Listen, you can come to my church <laughs> right here. We dropped this thing every That's Friday. Right. Hey, listen, well, I, we want to thank before we slide out the AFL-CIO for sponsoring yes. this thing. Uh, you know, listen, join a union, join yeah. a union, or at least go to the AFL-CIO website in this state. Take a look around, see if a union might be good for the place where you work or for you, or if there's already a union shop out there that's uh, representing yeah, your folks. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, do that. And uh, we really appreciate them uh, sponsoring us, keeping us on the uh, on the airwaves. I'm proud to be a pro-union podcast. Very proud of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, I mean, David, are in a union <laughs> of two. Uh, wait, that didn't, that didn't sound right. Um, all right. Well, it depends on who you're asking, I guess. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. Nope. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. I was going to do it for this week. Uh, thanks to uh, Brian Lyman and, and Camille for coming on. And, and really, uh, it's, you know, it's been a good yeah. show, man. It's yeah. been a good show. A lot uh, of so good we're, stuff. We're proud of this one. All right. Yeah, we're, we're going to slide out. Uh, for David, I'm Josh. Peace. Peace. See you.